Welcome to Frontier War Stories. Before I go on any further, I would like to pay my respects to all the Aboriginal people who fought in the Frontier Wars, which began as early as 1788 until the 1930s. That's roughly 140 years that Aboriginal people fought, that Aboriginal people continued to fight. I would like to pay my respects to all uh, mobs across uh, this beautiful continent. Each episode, I will speak with different Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people about research, books, and oral histories which document the first 140 years of conflict and resistance. These times are the frontier wars, and these are our war stories. On episode six, I speak with Angus Murray, Rajari PhD candidate at the University of Newcastle. His thesis statement is on how did the tactics of Aboriginal war warriors develop uh, from pre-1788 to 1897. Uh, thanks, Angus, uh, brother, for coming on and having a yarn with us um, on the podcast as well. <clears throat> I got your number, uh, sorry, your email uh, from Ray Kirkhoff, who I spoke with uh, last time on the podcast about um, his book, he and Frank's uh, book um, about uh, about Maltagra, the Battle of One uh, Tree Hill, uh, which is which was an amazing conversation. I'm, I've been dying to get the book uh, and check that out as well. Uh, but thanks, brother, for coming on and having a chat. Happy to be here, bro. Thanks for inviting me on, bro. That is all good. Just before we go any further, just tell us your mob in your country, please. Yeah, yeah. So I'm <laughs> I'm Wiradjuri. I'm from um, I'm from Kara, part of the Kara community. Um, but we also have family connections up around Brewarana. Oh, so, yeah, same, same. Um, my mum, she was born, a lot of her family was born in Garuga, but then they all got taken to Dodge City, uh, to the missionary, uh, to Bree, uh, and that's pretty much home for mum and her mum. So they're all Johnsons and Scootops from that Bree. Oh, okay. Yeah, these um, my, my, so would have been my grandfather's mother. Uh, mm. They were Gordons. Gordy, yeah, 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 yeah. I think, I think yeah. we might be connected somehow uh, along the line. Um, but before we go further as well, shout out to, you know, uh, Cara and, and, um, and, and, and the Radjuri mob as well. Um, you know, there's a very staunch warriors, you know, that we'll mention um, in this conversation, but, you know, that have still sort of continued and, and taken up many fights uh, for our people um, here in Australia as well. Um, we're yarning about, um, so this podcast is based on um, um, frontier wars and the conflict uh, of the first 140 years. Your PhD uh, is roughly uh, based around uh, frontier wars and, and the tactics uh, that developed, that Aboriginal people developed um, throughout you know, uh, time when uh, fighting, fighting a new war, an alien war, uh, which we were talking about off air. Uh, could you tell us a bit about uh, your studies? Yeah, absolutely. So my, um, I don't don't think I've sent it through to you, but the work, working title at the moment is uh, Age of the Batamar. Batamar is uh, Wiradjuri for gun or musket. Deadly. And uh, so it's it it is it is a military. It's very much a military history um, from that tr the traditional camp of military history, but it's coming from an indigenous perspective and basically it's focused on the warriors in that story rather than the settlers or soldiers. They still appear mm. just like we appear in white accounts, but this is flip. This is flipping it around. This will be black fella focused. Mm, mm, awesome. Well, yeah, well, I guess, you know, you've only just started this year and I'm sure <clears throat> under COVID-19 that sort of stuffed it up somewhat, has it? Hasn't made it easy, yeah, I'll be honest. I think there's a there's a there, there's a real like everyone thinks, oh, everything's online these days, you know, you can just get on and look at it online, but I can tell you there's very little that's been digitized, particularly <laughs> on this topic. Oh definitely, of course, of course, you know, like we're talking about a history um, and accounts you know, that may sort of shock and horror people, but then also that sort of set the foundation for, you know, relationships within this country as well. That may, that, you know, people may not want to sort of, you know, say make accessible as well. Um, <clears throat> um, you know, and, and, and like you just mentioned, sort of you're flipping a script on how, you know, um, you want this sort of period of time to be recorded, you know, uh, for the most part, 
um, this this type of this sort of history and uh, this field that you're sort of doing at the moment has been heavily recorded um, over time uh, by non-indigenous sort of historians and writers as well. Um, some good, some you know, um, some do, not doing justice to sort of our mob or sort of you know um, their own mob as well in terms of telling us about you know, denying that history. Um, can I just mm. get your thoughts you know, on the importance of sort of an Aboriginal person being in sort of a very pivotal position to tell this history, but like you said, from an Aboriginal perspective? Yeah, so I think, I think, that, um, I think that a big part of it is that, as, as you say, like even, even just putting the history aside, just working with the sources can be hard because a lot of them are confronting. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult subject. For starters, so that that might put people off, um, say a white researcher, because it, it, it's also you have to look far and wide for evidence because it's not an easy. This is not something that you can just go to the archives or you can go through uh, go through journals or letters or government reports, and we have we do have that, but that doesn't give you. The indigenous perspective to get the indigenous perspective you have to you have to think a bit differently about how you're going to find mm. that evidence and use that evidence and i don't think in in a way i think it takes an indigenous researcher to do that because you have to understand the importance of why you need to put in so much effort to to pull all that together to tell that mm. story because a white and like you said, there are there are a lot of fantastic um, there are a lot of fantastic non-indigenous historians that have worked in this area, but that that drive oh, recognizing that the truth the truth telling hmm. trying to um, build a strength based discourse like th those are indigenous matters. And I think it takes an indigenous perspective to even recognize that this side of the story has to be told. And to do that, you have to start looking at different areas. Oh, definitely as well, because I think, you know, um, one of the reasons why I wanted to, you know, sort of be a part of, you know, recording uh, these, uh, these talks and, you know, uh, you know, start this podcast was because, um, you know, I want to find out, more about you know our people and you know what they did and you know because it makes one that makes me feel proud you know to know that you know there's hundreds if not thousands of Aboriginal people men and women who fought on the frontier you know um, and then you know like I want to sort of put this on a platform where you know um, Dunderley's you know um, descendant can listen to it and want to be proud of it you know what I mean um, and I think you know for me that's what and I'm sure for yourself and other Aboriginal people who are in this space sort of have that sort of connectedness when we're talking about uh, this, uh, this type of history as well. Like it's, 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 it's more than just sort of truth telling as well. It's like, you know, um, we're talking about a history that, you know, we're, you know, um, and also I guess the, a lot of non-Indigenous sort of historians, like, like we're linked to sort of this history. Um, we're linked to sort of these individuals or these accounts that, you know, uh, uh, we're trying to talk about as well. Um, I remember when I spoke to um, Callum uh, Clayton Dixon about uh, surviving New England, he mentioned he just went on like this sort of like roller coaster uh, ride when, you know, finding all of these amazing things. And then towards the end of his book, he's like, oh, I knew that it's like the inevitable is going to happen. You know, they're going to set up missions and, you know what I mean, they're going to his policy is going to come because I knew that was happening, but because I didn't really want to get back to it as well. Um, do you sort of, obviously like, like, you know, that's going to sort of be a massive part of, um, of, um, you know, your research and sort of what you're doing as well. Um, do you sort of have to separate, um, I guess it might be a silly question, but is it hard to sort of separate the emotions and your connectedness to sort of, you know, wanting to put out the best that you can in terms of, you know, uh, the right type of research. It's not a it's not a silly question at all, and mm. I think um, I think for an indigenous researcher looking looking at history, it's 
that that element is always there because you know you know where it goes you know that in part it's directly connected to things that still affect you or your family um you do have to you do have to remove yourself from that um i or i i find that i have to remove myself and go into historian mode mm. sometimes um in the same way like so in 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 some of my in some other areas that I've looked at, um, say uh, fight, fighting in the Pacific between uh, US and Australia and Japan, um, it can be a very dark theatre. There were some truly awful things that happened in that theatre, but it particularly with because I do more US Japan because I'm not tied to either it. I can look at it mm. and I can I can analyze it from his historian's perspective without I mean there's still sometimes you read you know you're mm. reading a can you say all right I'm going to get a coffee but mm. you um yeah you you definitely have to put yourself in that mindset and I've found I found I found it hard when I started um mm. separating the Wiradjuri man from the historian and mm. in, so, in some ways, I don't think you can truly separate them, but I can at least compartmentalise. Yeah. I, 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 I agree with Callum. I think it's a necessary part of the research because otherwise you can't, you can't take on these stories and then let them sit on you while you're trying to do the research because you'd, you'd never get it done. Definitely. And do you think that's how... I guess the approach that yourself and other um, Aboriginal historians or researchers sort of differ from non-Indigenous people when recording, whether it's this history or, um, you know, any sort of, any part of sort of Aboriginal and uh, history over the last, you know, uh, 200 years. Yeah, they, mm -hmm. definitely. I mean, you can, for, for, a, for, a, for a non-Indigenous researcher there, I'm sure, I'm sure reading some of the stuff is tough and, yeah. um, you know, some of it just affects you because you're human. Um, but I think depending, and particularly depending on what you're doing, like if you're, if you're doing a history on say, um, say you're doing a history on an Australian barracks or an Australian regiment, um, mm -hmm. you can go into the archives, you can go through the documentary evidence, you can do your research, you can write, and you can step away from it. But mm. another part, another part of this too, and I think it's an important part, is that for a lot of indigenous research, you've got to talk to people. And that's a whole nother level of the research that you 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 can't step out mid-interview, you know. Mm. If you've gotten someone to open up that's some <clears throat> about something that is a painful memory, but they still they still have it, not only do you have to make sure that you're not taking on all that burden but that mm. you're recording accurately and recognizing that, yeah, you can't, it's, it's not like a documentary evidence. It's, you're not, you're not reading about some, someone that's long dead. You're mm. often talking to a descendant and it, that's, that's a lot harder to step away from. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess we'll sort of, um, thanks for sort of giving us a really good understanding on why you have, why you sort of chose this path and you know how important it is as well to you we'll sort of talk a bit about your work now um and your focus on um your focusing from 1788 to 1897 is that right yep mm -hmm. and, and why this period of time so there hasn't been from a historic going stepping back into history mode again um mm -hmm. from a historical perspective nearly Every account that we have so far of frontier conflict is region-based. So mm. it will be focusing on a particular area of the country, um, which some of them, you know, some of them have been critical to us understanding this. Um, but it makes it hard to establish a broader picture of how this was affecting lots of different mob all across mm. the country over time. So John Connor's uh, Frontier Wars, it is an example of, he, he covered um, several 
regions of Australia at once. Mm. But he also only worked with a period. For, so he worked from 1788 to 1838, which was a 50, which was a, a 50 year period. Um, and that was, that was a good, that was a good cutoff point for him because that was the last deployment of a British regiment in Australia. And that's when the war started to transition into the hands of settlers and native police and mm. um, that kind of th and troopers and that kind of thing. But that that leaves a big part of Australia uncovered. Mm. Um, I mean, 1838. That's only when things were starting to kick off in Queensland. Um, we're we for for most of North and North Australia, that kind of broad comparative research hasn't really been done so it's not just trying to increase the scope chronologically but geographically that's that was kind of the reason for uh that that era but i suppose the the working date the working end date may change but mm. 1897 was chosen because jandamara that was when um Jandamara was killed. He he was fighting in a very very different way um, to how warriors were fighting when the British first showed up, mm -hmm. and when they were fighting around the Sydney area, and then in Bathurst or in Tasmania, and even again in Queensland, it's quite different. Mm. The fighting in Kimberley, warriors adapted not just to the technologies that were emerging and the changing, the way that the war was changing as it moved across the country. But I personally believe that it was changing as these warriors saw what was unfolding across the rest of the country and that caused them to change how they were fighting, the tactics they were employing. Mm -hmm. I remember um, I was talking to, to Ray and he mentioned, you know, uh, messaging and signaling as well. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's going to be a part of, you know, some of your work as well. How sort of, you know, because that would have been a big part of how Mob would have adapted and how they would have found out about what was happening, say, in New South Wales uh, and Queensland before, you know, things went over to the borders of South Australian WA. Sorry, South Australian MT. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Ray Ray's work in this, um, and I've seen I've seen the article that is, that is coming that he's got on this, is is incredible. Uh, I, I was quite I was quite blown away by how, totally. like the fact that he was able to tabulate different kinds of smoke signals, mm. like that's that's immense, and that I think that that makes it so much more plausible that groups were aware of what was happening to other mob further across the country. And mm, mm, this would have had like, it took, it took quite a while to get from Sydney to the Kimberley, mm. but these smoke signals don't take very long. So mm. they would have had time to discuss this, to talk with other groups around them. And yeah, I, I, I think that, that kind of communication was really key mm. for how these other these other groups would prepare, because I I I don't think while while maybe to begin with uh, when it was kind of restrained to the Sydney area and the Bathurst mm. area, maybe there were mob in other parts of the country thinking, oh, they'll stop at some point. Mm. You know how much how much is enough? They'll stop at some point. Mm. But I feel at some stage the penny would have dropped that they're coming for everyone. They're coming for the whole country. We need to be doing something about this. And we've heard what they're doing. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think stuff like Ray's, Ray's communication work is, is key to supporting that kind of, that kind of argument. Definitely. I remember I was speaking with um, some of the mob uh, early this year from uh, the National Museum, I think it is, um, down in Sydney. They were doing an exhibition um, 
not to commemorate Cook, but sort of to commemorate the resistance of Aboriginal people. Um, and I remember I was chatting uh, to them, and they were and they were mentioning how the Ewan mob would do uh, the spot, uh, the signal fires along the coast uh, when um, the Endeavour was sort of you know going up the east coast, um, you know, and and there's sort of like recorded history histories of that as well. So um, it's, it's yeah, you know, like like there's. Um, and then, you know, when I was talking to Ray, he mentioned how, you know, sort of the Darling Downs area is pretty hilly and mountain and lots of mountain ranges as well. So, you know, um, you know it was possible, you know, especially like, you know, because we're talking about the Great Dividing Range, which stretches from one part of the top of Queensland, uh, you know, one part of the top of Australia to, you know, pretty practically all the way down to Victoria as well. So, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's the, uh, the best way, you know what I mean, to sort of get this message out and one of the most sort of, I guess in a way isolated but sort of rough terrain for you know like Europeans at the time to sort of you know try and get there and and dismantle sort of these signaling points as well. Absolutely, yeah, mm. for sure. And and I th and I must admit, uh, Ray's work on this has made me look at Wiradjuri country differently. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's awesome. Well, you know what I mean. Um, uh, you know, so we're talking about the, the the development of the tactics that mob used. So could you sort of talk about what was sort of used before colonisation in terms of, um, and, I, and I guess like in this context, in this podcast, we're talking about battle and talking about conflict as well. How was conflict dealt with um, pre-colonisation with the mob? Um, and and, and I'm, I don't know if, if, if this is sort of where you've, you know, done the extensive research on Rajuri country as well in terms of like the battling and the conflicts that I'm sure have been recorded. So, yeah, so in some ways it's the million dollar question because mm. um, it is finding evidence of how that conflict was conducted, how it was, uh, how, it was how, the, how the laws around it were observed. Um, it's very it's it is difficult to build a picture mm, you definitely and so i straight up i want to say i don't know mm. but we do have some stuff that we can work with to begin with and i'm hoping that by the time i've finished the time by the time i finish this thesis not only will we have a more complete of how mm. warriors were fighting against the british but we will have a far better understanding of the circumstances that they came out of prior to contact, mm. to British contact, I should say. Um, so a current, currently, I suppose, the established perspective on how conflict was conducted between groups prior to colonisation is a lot of it's based on Horatio Hale's observations uh, mm. from 1840 of the ritual fighting and the different kinds of fighting. And jo John Connor looks at a bit of this and Ray has as well um, on the different formats that the fights would take. But there is, there is clearly more to this picture. And I think um, I'll so. To find some of this evidence, documentary evidence, obviously, is not going to be any good. Mm. Um, there'll be accounts that settlers might have, but even if you're able to get through all of the, you know, the prejudice and the bias and a lot of mm. the accounts about, and just the lack of understanding, they're watching something, they don't know if they're watching a football game or an actual blue. Mm. Um, the, the, I, th I think the answer lies in different areas such Definitely. as archaeological yeah. evidence um so in in when i when i was proposing this research to university in newcastle i drew on uh i drew on a friend of mine's work uh kelly wiltshire she's an archaeologist and she's done a lot with the Naranjeri in south australia mm -hmm. and in her phd she cites the local knowledge which describes a great battle around a pink lake in South Australia. And, you know, it said the, war, the, war, the 
the water was pink from all the blood that had run into the lake over the years. Mm. And this, this knowledge coincided with other uh, local knowledge that there had been conflict between themselves and uh, another group from Victoria, uh, the Tatiara. And so this, this lake was said to be kind of like a battleground. Mm. The shores of this lake were a battleground. And one thing that uh, the archaeological evidence revealed that the closer, what seemed to be the closer they got to, these digs got to the water, the denser the concentration of artifacts within, mm. um, within the sand around the lake. And some of these look to have been composite weapons and a common, a commonly known composite, we- what composite weapon is a death spear. Mm. Death spears in the archaeology for, for an archaeologist, a death spear normally, not always, but normally indicates, and it, and that that's if that's what these are. Um, and I, th- I think I think I should highlight too. There is an element of speculation here mm. to try and string these things together, but that this kind of thought process is how we're going to unlock a better understanding of Mm. this kind of warfare where we can't, we can't, we can't rely or conflict rather where we can't rely on the established forms of evidence. One, one thing that um, the presence of a composite weapon indicates is person to person violence, Mm. because you're not getting, they're not, they're not a hunting weapon. So whether this, whether this battle that uh, the local knowledge talks about is maybe it was a one-off, maybe it was a series of conflicts that they had with this other group that um, accusations of sorcery were seen if you, if you cause Kelly also drew upon, um, other sources herself, such as ethnography and anthropology. And there are accounts talking about accusations of sorcery being a potential motive for this conflict. Mm. This is all, so stepping back from that kind of picture, like this is just so different Mm. to fighting settlers in hills with even different Mm. weapons. Because I, 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 I personally think that if you're, because there's plenty of accounts that talk about the fact that a settler was speared. Um, there's one, so there's one from 1905, for example. There's a settler that there's a drover that's speared going from Western Australia to South Australia, mm-hmm. and the account specifically mentions, "Gee, it was lucky it wasn't a it wasn't a barbed weapon." Mm-hmm. So white people knew they were around. White people knew that barbed weapons were a tool in the indigenous. Uh, toolkit for conflict, but clearly there was a difference. If they if if they were being used on this battlefield, but then they weren't being used in combat against settlers. Mm. Clearly, there is a difference in the way that that is being fought, and I suspect that perhaps there was a lack. Uh, it's it it goes it goes back to a traditional law and how that would have bound a lot of this together for that kind of like a, a barbed a barbed or a um I say barbed spear it's archaeologists um, will probably fleece me for <laughs> for describing it like that but it's it's just it's just for the sake of you know getting the general point um, that kind of spear was said by other accounts to be quite time intensive to construct. Mm. If you're going to spend time constructing a bunch of these kinds of weapons, you're going to need to know that you are going into a certain kind of fight where they're going to be needed. And I don't think that a lot of the conflict with settlers, maybe just in this area, that that pretext for war was missing. Mm. Mm. Um, and I, th- I think that's, that's kind of the way that 
I want to establish this difference between the way that law, war, uh, conflict was conducted prior to the British showing up and then conflict with the British is that conflict between Indigenous groups was so heavily bound by traditional law that a lot of it just didn't mesh with frontier conflict. Mm, mm, mm. Um, I guess in your research, do you sort of see where those tactics change? Like how later down the track, um, you know, because obviously you end uh, with Jandamara and Jandamara's war in 1897, I believe it is, um, where he was using a, a, a rifle and on horseback, you know, um, and raiding um, uh, different places to, you know, to build uh, to grab a stockpile of ammunition, you know, and I guess in sort of this sort of, in this sort of first part of that we've been yarning about it sort of, you know, just using traditional weapons or traditional battle weapons as well. Um, yeah. When did it sort of change? So I think, I think there was, um, again, this is an answer I hope to more fully answer, but my, my initial thoughts is that it was ongoing and it mm. changed not just as different groups encountered uh, the frontier as it moved towards them, but, as the technologies changed because in some ways the frontier was also different by the time it got to Bathurst, they were using a very compact comparatively to the rifle that Jandamara was using. It was a very rudimentary firearm uh, mm. to the point where a spear was often seen to be a more accurate, more reliable weapon. The damage wasn't always the same, but you could carry a bunch, you could throw them quickly, they were light, didn't matter if it rained. Uh, the range was almost similar and mm. these were weapons that warriors knew very well. Mm. So they were, you know, absolute crack shots with them. Um, so the adaptions, in, in the same way that it was a different frontier that reached mm. different groups, um, the adaptions were different, but one one that seems to be fairly fairly universal is at least before repeating rifles um, and that kind of thing. When muskets were still being used, it seems to be fairly universal that warriors in lots of different regions would were familiar with the concept of striking while they're reloading. Like mm, that mm, that mm. that is something that I think most most mob have heard of today, um, but it's something that lots of groups did. Mm. And it, 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 it appeared in different ways. So in Tasmania, there are accounts of, and this may well have happened in other areas, but it's just we have the account from Tasmania of the warriors baiting the shots. So they couldn't wait for them to fire and miss and then reload. They were trying to spook them into shooting wide and then they'd strike. So then they taunt them in English, you know. Mm. Um, but other another another tactic that is quite different um, comes from um, comes from up near Brisbane actually um, is the way that warriors adapted to fortified huts mm. out on the frontier. Um, and this is something that still, you know, even, even, even getting people to talk about fortifications on the frontier is difficult. Ray mm. and I have talked about this. And um, just for the sake of like the listeners and myself as well, can you tell us a bit about that? Like yeah. So, so generally, generally we're talking, uh, a wooden, wooden structure and generally we're talking a multi-purpose building. So we're not where there's not there's not british one of erecting palisades and fortifications mm. out in the middle of nowhere they they were um, or forts rather they were the settlers a lot of settlers would build their huts with gun ports in them because that was an easy way that was an easy place to retreat and defend from and this this account that i've got um it's from uh 1851 
up around uh, southern Queensland. The article specifically mentions that this is what a lot of huts were built with. And mm. it specifically states these huts were built with a gun port or a gun loop or there's lots of like that. This is another part. The language changes, so it can be hard to find evidence for them. But these huts were built with a slit that you could stick a rifle through to resist the assaults of warriors. Mm. That is what that is what the article describes. And one of the tactics that um, and so and so they, these were in different parts. So I in in my early research in Wiradjuri country, it looks like they were definitely in Wiradjuri country too. Mm. Um, and it's the other thing is too, it was standard practice for the British going into other nations, like going into other countries rather. They did it in Africa. They did it in um, India. They did mm. it in North America. They built fortifications. Settlers would put, would knock four walls together because it was, an easy way to defend a certain area that there's, there's no, I don't think there's any, I think, I think it's so plausible and it's more plausible that it was employed in Australia um, mm. because that was just what the British were doing. But getting back to how warriors adapted to that, this account. Now I will say a lot of the count is a lot of like a lot of these other British accounts. They love to G up how many warriors they were fighting and how brave yeah. they were, you know, mm. the showers of spears that they were running through to save a baby and all this kind of stuff. But mm. what you can get from the account is that it was, it was obvious that warriors in that area, cause they complain about it in the account that the settler runs to his hut and sets up in his hut, you know, with all his guns on the table and he's ready to shoot out the holes. And then he talks about the difficulty that warriors in the area had learned that if you rushed the hut and blocked the ports, couldn't <laughs> stick a gun at it and yeah. then you could set fire to the roof very easily. And so this, this, this particular account ended up being um, what sounds like another indigenous victory because while they didn't, they didn't kill him and they didn't kill uh, the person that said to rescue him. They took so many cattle that mm. they were pleased that they got 150 head back. Eventually, like eventually, you know, an expedition was put together to go and get the cattle that had been taken. Um, that, that was like the, how this account ends that they're saying, oh, at least we've got 150 back. So how many did they take? Mm -hmm. And they had them for a while because they yeah. said they'd been eating them. I remember when I was talking to Ray, actually, he mentioned this as well, where, you know, they would, you know, go in there at nighttime or whatever, still, still had a cattle, march it for, you know, miles and weeks and months or whatever, pick off and eat some, or even just sort of, you know, make a sort of natural sort of uh, uh, caged barn area where they just sort of leave these cattle, just sit, sit them here and then just take off and just leave them. Um, you know, and then they, then they'll have to send like resources or whatever to find, you know, these cattle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, 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 very touching that as well. I thought it was, it was quite funny. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, yeah, it's, um, and I think, I think it's these kind of accounts like, and this is using a white account from a yeah. white perspective. Yet you can still, if you're looking for, if you're looking for the indigenous perspective in this account, you can see that warriors, that was, they adapted to these fortifications. Mm. They mm. learned a way. And this was something that was so far removed from, I mean, they weren't burning huts in 1787. Like, mm. you know, this, this, this was an adaption to a new kind of warfare um, mm. that was well, clearly successful. Definitely. Cause you know, like, like we, we, we touched on it before about how, we think it would have been pre-colonization and in terms of like how our mob would have went at it as well. You know, uh, Libby mentions it in her book that I have here somewhere, you know, uh, where, you know, settlers or, um, 
I think even artists, sketch artists or whatever at the time, they'd love to sort of set up and just watch these events. Um, you know, and, and Callum mentioned it, not in the podcast, but, you know, uh, we always chat. We're always chatting. Um, he mentions through his research um, a gathering of like 600 black followers. You know, mm. um, painted up in, in in ochre and you know um, fire torches, like you know setting up the area and stuff. And this just kicking off at dusk, and then they're getting in. You know, these things going for hours on end. Um, you know, uh, you know the, the best of the best sort of you know meet you know, and then, you know, have it out, but, you know, they're fighting ferociously, you know, that they have, you know, uh, weapons with intent, I guess, as well to, to maim and to hurt, but, you know, at, at, at the slightest sort of, um, indication of somebody being hurt or, or damaged pretty badly, like, you know, the contest sort of stops and, you know, they, they wait, you know, to, to reassure this person's better and then get back into it as well, you know, and, and, and this maybe accounts where, you know, um, you know, uh, from, you know, just your ordinary trip, like, you know, you're gathering for ceremonies or, or, you know, to settle disputes between different sort of individuals or, or nations as well, um, you know, and then you sort of, you know, and then, like, when you sort of take a second to sort of, hey, look, hey, wait a minute, like, um, the, the battling that, you know, these mob are doing at this time, you know, if they're not, you know, um, trying to maim or kill each other. What are they trying to do? You know, like, like what's sort of the end goal um, with this sort of, you know, um, purpose and intent with what these two people are going through or, you know, these tribal people going through as well. You know what I mean? Um, I thought that was amazing when, when, when sort of chatting to, to Libby, trying to get that part, her to sort of talk more about that part as well, about how, mm-hmm. you know, on one instance, you know, they're living on a violent frontier. You know the mob. You know their the, their whole world, their whole sort of perception, is is changing rapidly. You know that they're still carrying out traditional life, and in one instance they're you know in sort of you know, they're in ceremony or, or whatever, and they're in battle mode with another mob. But then you know that may change, and they may have to sort of you know go down you know the river or over the mountain to sort of defend you know their mob, but but sort of their tactics within sort of how they have conflicts um, with their own mob or with, with a neighbouring tribe is sort of how they'll sort of battle and fight, you know, uh, these settlers as well. You know, like in, in an early count, and you mentioned off air as well, how, um, and, and, you know, other people I've spoken to, you know, in these earlier sort of accounts, um, they would just want to clear the land of, of these settlers and of their cattle as well, you know, and that, that maybe may, um, you know, hurt them to an extent where, you know, they're strong enough to get away, you know, there wasn't an intent to sort of just wipe out and kill uh, on any battlefront uh, in also in these earlier stages as well. Um, yeah. And, and I, th- I think, <clears throat> and I think that's, that is an important part of it too, is recognizing that, yeah, just how, how incredibly strong the laws mm. must have been by the time, because I mean we, you know, we had we had sixty thousand plus years to develop them, but mm. how strong they must have been to uh, to foster this level of restraint in because you know I would, there's a, there's a good book by um, another is another is a white historian, but he, um, he does a lot comparing different areas of the world. Uh, it's called, called Brothers and Barbarians. It's re- really, mm. really interesting, right? And his, his thesis is that um, violence is a form of communication and that it is moderated by, it's moderated, it, 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 it's, on, it's on a spectrum. So at one end there's atrocity and another and at the other end there's restraint and his his particular work is talking about the way that um first nations in america were treated very differently to different sides of the civil war or the different that british and americans would treat each other differently the way they treat first nations in the revolutionary war but i think what I think if you were using that kind of that kind of perspective that of restraint 
being one end of this spectrum in the way that you conduct uh, conduct mm. violence, that Aboriginal warriors were clearly at that end. You know, we don't mm. have we don't. It's 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 very rare um, in the accounts that we have that. Well, so you know, going going back to um, going back to the Bathurst Wars. A, a group of settlers would have killed on spot because of because they had it had been found that they'd built on a borer ground. Mm. Now, clearly, that violation there there was a violation of a law so dire that 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 was the response. Mm-hmm. Whereas setting up a farm probably. Within within the scope of that law, that probably wasn't, and from from for, for a group that was that a whole society was built on these strong laws. Mm. Killing the farmers probably wasn't an appropriate response, and I think I think this is part of it too. Like we always talk about how, well, at least in uh, in lip service, indigenous. Australians were afforded the protections of the British law, um, even though we played out that played out very differently on the frontier. Mm. I think a big part of it is that white people were treated under traditional law, mm. and that 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 has helped that has helped shaped the way that warriors would respond to these kinds of circumstances. And and I, I think it's another I think it's another great point too about that adaption that a good portion of you know when i was talking about the um the pink lake battleground before mm-hmm. that 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 might be you know that might be um we we don't, we don't know enough about that to know how normal that kind of situation was but what we do know is that there was a lot of um Almost, you know, warriors were training for. It was yeah, like you're saying that the the fighting would stop to make sure that someone wasn't, mm. you know, the brains weren't coming out, or they could still be somewhere they could still mm. be picked up and dragged off. Like to go for to go from training all of your life for that kind of almost like tournament environment, and then being thrust into a situation where none of the rules of the tournament are there. All you've got is mm. the skills that you learn to train for that tournament. And then you've got to try and fit them into protecting your people, protecting your land. Mm. Um, like it's that level of adaption is just incredible. And I think, I think, it, I think it really, really highlights um, the brilliance of indigenous mm. warriors. That yeah. They, yeah. They could adapt to something so completely different. Mm, for sure, you know. And um, I remember when I when I spoke to Libby, she mentioned how, um, in in the case of Dundalee, he wouldn't retaliate or do anything unless it was on his country, unless it you know directly affected him or his mob. Um, and when it did, you know, um, he would you know burn down crops or kill cattle. Um, you know, herd him off his off his country, send him you know another way. Um, but then you know, speaking with him, speaking with her, and also Ray and Callum and other people, you know, um, when mob did have to kill people, it was in it was in response to them, you know, breaking you know serious laws and and really harming or killing Aboriginal people as well. It was in the defence of, you know, what I mean, um, young people getting you know hurt really young Aboriginal people getting hurt really bad to the point of, you know, rape and, and, and being stolen and, you know, and being brutalised as well that, you know, that that's when sort of, you know, uh, it was taken into, you know, it got more heavy handed, you know, but mm. it was just for that individual or for those people, you know, who, who did something very, very wrong. Um, there, there, you know, like there was a clear distinction between, you know, like, like, um, if you've done something really, really wrong within, you know, this Aboriginal society, you know, whether you're not Aboriginal, but if it affects us, you know, like we will, you know what I mean? Um, 
he'll be punished appropriately to, you know, Aboriginal law. Mm, mm, yeah. Yeah. Which I find, um, which I find within that, within itself is amazing as well that, <clears throat> you know, um, from what, you know, Libby could find, you know, Dundalee made a very, very good example and distinction between, you know what I mean? Like, um, you know, you, you, you'll be paid back for what you've done under Aboriginal law. But then also when I go to war or, you know, like when I'm, you know, having other battle tactics, you know, I'll still stick firmly to my traditions and, you know, um, won't necessarily go out and heinously, you know, kill individuals as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I, th I think, I think that's a big part of trying to understand, trying to understand the why and the how of mm. Aboriginal warriors fighting is to understand all of the things that made up the rest of their life. So, you know, the, this mil military history, while you can, while you can uh, take something like the frontier wars and stick totally to the battlefield or to the soldiers involved and that kind of thing, it, it doesn't exist in a bubble though. The threads of someone's life, they all cross. If, if they, if they go into a battle, all of the threads that make up their life, they go into that battle too. The, again, the political, the social, the religious law, um, even the way, even the Aboriginal concept of economy, like all of these things cross over in the individual when they're fighting. And that, and this 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 is part of this is part of where I'm going with my thesis mm -hmm. too, as far as methodology. Um, it's a military cultural perspective, so it's not just looking at the military; it's looking at how all of the aspects of indigenous society affected the individual fighting mm -hmm. in these battles. Because mm. they they were they they were bound by law. That's mm. that seems very clear. And um, and like you mentioned it before, when you spoke about uh, your friend uh, who's an archaeologist and does some stuff um, with some of in South Australia, some her thesis. Um, <clears throat> you know, the battlefront where our mob met as well was very was a very significant place. You know, so the environment that these that these events happened in you know, happened, you know, for 60,000 years before, you know, um, and then you look at how sort of, you know, you know, um, it adapted and changed over time where, you know, a hundred or whatever years later, you know, um, Gender Maris chasing some, you know, some settlers down on, on horseback or, you know, um, you know, Maltigra is using big boulders to roll down a hill to sort of, you know, block the main uh, road for, you know, these settlers and, and coppers not to get through to get, you know, uh, to, to continue to hunt them. Like, you know, you know, when it was in a, you know, like, like these were sort of, besides, I guess, um, the Gendamara case, but, you know, like these are really controlled spaces that Aboriginal people really tra traversed and used the land to its best ability. Mm, yeah, no, a hundred percent, and I, I think that, I think that's a really important point about um, the, the 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 battlefield, for lack of a better word, along the Pink Lake is that even even if this was even if this was a fight, even if the conflicts that occurred in this area were, say, not subject to the same rules that you might have in a regular conflict it was still an established place it was like it's like um you know you european nations in napoleonic era meeting in a set place to fight mm. it's this is you've got a space away from away from everything else that is predetermined this this is where this the battlefield is where we are going to settle this and that yeah these and uh, and even even considering that i think is an important part of it is that we always talk we well, if they talked about it all aboriginal warriors um 
being effective guerrilla fighters, as you're saying, they that wasn't that wasn't how that started. Hmm. This is not the that's not the kind of fighting that they were likely doing. They they there were there were clearly set areas where you would fight, and that's not how a guerrilla hmm. fighter fights. Hmm. That's an adaption. That hmm. is an adaption. And and then also like. Um, you know, these sort of designated areas where these events happened and took place, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, there were sort of, you know, what do you want to call it, elders, you know, I'm, I'm sure that were sort of the custodians of these places, you know, that would have did everything in their power to sort of make sure that this one wasn't even battle, you know, two, that, you know, um, both parties, were sort of, you know, treated to maybe the best, you know, medical support of the time or whatever, you know, I'm sure because this is a controlled area, you know what I mean, um, and there's elders here um, to maybe oversee it and witness it that, you know, things stay in the confined, in the confines of, of the law and of the space as well, which, you know, again, sort of speaks to, to, to volume in terms of how, you know, how mobs sort of conducted themselves um, in and around these times as well. Yeah, and uh, absolutely, and like like I said, there there is even from this one account, um, mm. there is so much that is missing. But if it still seems to fit within the idea that there were ways that you there were laws that you observed when you fought, and that controlled, mm. Mm. that's that's going to control how a warrior fights. Definitely, we'll sort of get into the back end of this scene. I've got a couple more questions. Um, yep. You know, obviously, at the end of this, you know, uh, I'm sure you, you know, you're going to put it in as a book. You know, you, you get your PhD, but what what sort what else is the end goal at the end of you know putting all this stuff together? So, yep, book 100 percent um, will be will be one of the avenues that I pursue. But I, I'm very I'm very um, when 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 I started this, you know, the, the book the book will be for the part that's challenging some of this theoretical stuff. It's challenging the stuff that's in the the academic sphere. sphere. Um, it's got spear on the brain. Um, this challenging stuff in the academic sphere, challenging at a theoretical level, the way a lot of this history is done, but. To be perfectly blunt, mm. a fifty-dollar university press book is not much good to a ten-year-old kid still mm. living on a mission. Yeah, like that—that that, that is not an effective means of getting them. So I like I I always took I always took it for granted, and I I thought I thought every I thought every um, Aboriginal kid had this growing up. You know, dad, dad would always tell me stories about Windradon and about our warrior ancestors and the way they led troopers all over Bathurst and they couldn't catch mm. them. And that was always a source of pride for me. Mm. And even my grandfather um, wrote a song called Windradon, um, which I, yeah, growing up, I just assumed that other... Mm at least other Wiradjuri kids had that, but then I've met a lot of Wiradjuri kids that haven't heard of Windradon. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that there was only Windradon too, and that's what I'm hoping that will come out of this, is the discovery of other warriors that we haven't heard of yet in other areas where, you know... Um, anyway, I, 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 would, I would like it... I would like it Funny, one of one of the ideas that I was quite keen on when I was finished was a podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, cool, cool, cool. Yeah. Um, I th- I think this is a, I think it's a very effective medium um, mm-hmm. for for reaching for reaching blackfellas who can get a lot of strength from the memory of their warrior ancestors, from the resilience that they showed, from the often hard decisions that they had to make again, you know, not to harp on about Windradine, but when, when he chose peace at the end of 
the, at the end of the, to end the Bathurst Wars. That that in itself, like that, was a hell of a decision. That would the courage to mm-hmm. be able to say, "I helped start this fight, and we can't win this for the sake of my people. I need to, I need to move for peace, and I need to, despite all the blood that had been shed, I need to move for peace." And I'm I'm sure that that decision probably stuck with him for the, like he would have thought that until he died. Mm. He would have he thought about that until he died. And he, he would have been human. He would have had moments where he doubted whether he made the right decision. But the fact that he had the courage at all to mm. do that has been such a source of strength for me. And I want to find the stories of other warriors and other areas across Australia. So, well, like yeah, yeah, this, yeah, and like that's you know as as much as as would have been sort of a really hard, difficult sort of decision for him to make. Um, the frontier was even as as difficult and as bloodier. You know, in other cases, you know, lots of Aboriginal people never got the chance to sort of make that. They were just you know, mowed down. You know, um, they were sort of, you know uh, they, they were sort of seen as a threat. You know, before sort of having the chance to sort of make that decision. Yeah. You know, so, um, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's definitely a very sort of difficult thing to make. And like you said, I'm sure he would have sort of lived with that as well. I'm sure he would have witnessed everything that would have carried on after, you know, making that decision where, you know, I'm sure he would have questioned, um, himself as well. <clears throat> um, I guess maybe I'll just finish off with this. We'll just finish off with this, you know, beginning your research, but then also, I guess, throughout sort of, you know, your learnings from as a young boy to now, what's, what's one of the most interesting things that you've sort of uncovered within this as well about, you know, this period of time? We just sort of left there and all thinking like, oh, yeah, this is, this is something that sort of maybe moved me to sort of continue to work in this field or, you know, I mean, sort of made you feel awesome and proud about, you know, being a Radjuri and being a black fella and, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think it's, it's kind of, it's kind of like that thing of, I I don't, I don't know that there was any one thing that Hmm. generally you know, these things tend to happen with lots of small things. So when when I started looking at this as a potential topic, that was when I stumbled on the account of, um, you know, the warriors blocking the gun ports on the hut mm. and um, the and then talking to, to, to uh, Kelly about her work in South Australia and mm. that mm. kind of thing. That, all of that... Um, all of that kind of that deep immersion, you know, you get to the point where you're like, this is what matters. You've gotten to the point where you recognize the value of it. And this is what matters. And this has to be shared. But I guess if there was one, one really powerful moment for me was, um, I went up to, went up to the Kimberley to Fitzroy crossing for work. And I was speaking to, um, I was speaking to an old follower up there and, he was talking about the ways in which they can engage what they've, they've called it the third tribe. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with the term. It's probably something that they've just come up with, I think, but every group experiences it, which is that you have lots of young indigenous kids who, or teenagers, some of them, even adults that, are not connected to their culture, to their history, uh, to their language, to country. Mm-hmm. And, and that might be, they might want to connect. They might not be able to connect. They might not, who to, that, a big part of it is not knowing who to ask, not mm. knowing where to go. Where do you, where do you find, how do you, how do you reconnect? But, this, this old fella said, you know, regardless of what level of the connection that you're at and 
that kind of thing. You're a warrior and all these other indigenous kids, they're warriors too. It's a, it's a different, it's a different kind of, we're working with a different kind of landscape. It's, mm. we live in a completely different world to the world that the warriors on the frontier were fighting. But just knowing that I shared that ancestry with mm. some of these proud warriors that were willing to step into a, as we've been saying, a completely unknown environment and not just adapt to it, but have the courage to step into mm. it and to adapt to it and to fight in it and be prepared to die in it. Mm. That, that has been such a reservoir of strength that I, even doing this when, you know, when the reading can get a bit too much or the stories that I'm hearing get a bit too much, I think my my ancestors went through a lot worse. I reckon I reckon I can do this for their sake, so their memory is lost. Mm, that's awesome, brother. Um, and just really quickly, just to finish it off, um, this is episode six of Frontier War Stories. Um, my guest is Angus Murray, PhD candidate at the University of Newcastle. His thesis. Um, it's based around, it dates from 1788 to 1897 and looks at how Aboriginal uh, warriors developed, uh, and how, sorry, how their tactics developed over this period of time, uh, which is a very interesting uh, period of time as well because as mentioned through this podcast, we see sort of, you know, it happened at different sort of times in different areas after, you know, we, we see, um, um, you know, colonies i think like further could go further through to different parts of the land um, we've had an amazing discussion also just want to mention there's lots of awesome work actually being done down at the university of newcastle as well is that where um they're doing the ma uh, the massacres uh, map Lyndall Ryan is my supervisor yeah, yeah, yeah. she's yeah she's yeah. deadly yeah yeah she's awesome yeah. Um, like i host another show uh, on 989 FM um, and we've had Lyndall on a couple of times um, to have you on about the amazing work that she's doing and also um, uh, John Maynard is there or was it yeah, he's got he's John, also awesome. yeah, he's awesome. yeah yeah that's awesome that's good yeah, yeah. we actually had Uncle John on the program two weeks ago uh, to have a chat about his grandfather and sort of you know because that was a you know that in itself is sort of another sort of way that the warriors sort of shifted and adapted and yeah, that's a whole lot um, of that is. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it is. Yeah. And it's Stephen Gaps too. He's, mm -hmm. he's associated with, um, with Newcastle and his book, Sydney. Wars. Oh, that, uh, Sydney Wars. That's right. Yeah. 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 Um, Strongly recommended read. Definitely. Cause it's sort of based around the military tactics as well, isn't it? He does. So yeah, his, yeah. his is very much a wide account of, uh, of the Sydney settlement. But mm. one of the things that I love is that you can always feel the indigenous presence, even though it is white history, mm. you feel like you're reading a history that's set on indigenous land and you feel, you feel, you feel yeah, you feel that indigenous presence within the book. So yeah. Awesome. I definitely, definitely. Well, just um, thanks brother for coming on and having a sham with us. Um, you know, it, it means a lot to sort of, uh, you know, continue this discussion, but then also have other mob, you know, who are in this, who are in this sort of field, um, you know, really doing the hard yards in terms of getting down and, and going through these uh, archives and these articles. And like you just mentioned, you know, it may in some instances be very disheartening um, yeah, because there is sort of that, you know, um, it's like the inevitable that happens, you know, like we, you know, we're a result of the inevitable that, that has happened, the policies that have happened, but then also we are a result, like you mentioned of, you know, uh, people like Windredine and, and Dunderley and Pemaway as well. So you know, definitely thank you for coming on, brother. Very, very happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me, Bo. Much appreciated, brother.